Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We are taping today on Wednesday, April 24th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, the news, and there is plenty. Let's start with the news that's breaking. Tuesday night, a federal judge in Oregon put controversial Trump administration rules governing the Title X federal family planning program on ice, at least for the moment. This is one of so many lawsuits on these rules that I actually created a spreadsheet. Alice, you've been following this, I think, even more closely than I have. Uh, First, remind us what these rules would do. So the rules are related to the nation's main family planning program. And so it distributes hundreds of millions of dollars to all kinds of clinics and state health agencies around the country. And so these new rules are similar to rules the Reagan administration tried to implement that never actually got implemented. I covered those. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything's back again. Um, and it would ban any provider who offers abortions or abortion referrals from getting any federal money. So all Planned Parenthoods across the whole country, which serve a huge amount of the Title X population. And we should point out that not all Planned Parenthoods do abortions, but Correct. they all do refer for abortion. Correct. And so, But they all said that because they disagree with these restrictions on a legal and ethical level, that they would just quit the program entirely if the rules went into effect. And in some areas, it could be hard to fill that gap and have other providers come in. A couple state health agencies have also said the same thing, that they would quit the program entirely. And so now we're in this limbo. We don't know what the scope of the last night's ruling will be, if it will be national. Um, we or if we're going to see, I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing, we're expecting other rulings this right. week too. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So four federal courts are hearing more than four cases about this, and any one of them could do a national injunction. And, and they're supposed a, a to take effect court next, next week, right? May 3rd, yes, the rules, uh, if there's no injunction now. National injunction, yes. So, so this is this is quite the. Um, I mean, I guess we all knew it was going to come to a head about now because the mm-hmm. rules were scheduled to take effect. Um, and and the judge, um, two of the main judges hearing the cases are President Obama appointees, and so it was sort of expected. Like the one who ruled uh, last night, um, it was more expected that they would be amenable to hearing these challenges and to blocking the rules at least temporarily. What did the judge say? Um, he called. So we haven't gotten the decision yet, but uh, reports from the courtroom, this was in Oregon, so I couldn't be there, unfortunately, but said that he really railed against the government's reasoning for the rules, really pushing them on how would this improve health outcomes? Um, what is the basis for this? He called it ham-fisted um, and so was, was very, very critical of the Trump administration's uh, reasoning for this. Well, this will obviously continue to play out, and I guess there's every expectation that, like the original Reagan rules, it will end up at the Supreme Court. Um, worth probably pointing out that those original Reagan rules were upheld by the Supreme Court. They just, right. for complicated reasons, they were in effect for like 
40 days. Um, and then Bill Clinton came in and eventually, I mean, the, the court case went through the entirety of the Bush one administration. Mm-hmm. But Julie, you've written about why um, that w- it might be different this time because of the Affordable Care Act. That's right. And that's that's a different issue. Thank you for reminding me of that, that the Affordable Care Act wrote into, um, into its legislative mm-hmm. language some of the things on which the uh, the original Reagan rules were upheld, so it would it will be interesting to see you know this time what the what the Supreme Court says. On the one hand, it will be harder for the Supreme Court to uphold, and on the other hand, there's now clearly five justices who would be presumably inclined to uphold restrictions on abortion, and this right. is sort of a backdoor restriction on abortion. And the the administration um, argued in these. In these lawsuits, responding to these lawsuits, that a couple sort of vague lines in the Affordable Care Act that don't specifically mention abortion or contraception at all are not enough to override the Supreme Court precedent. And so we'll, we'll see how those arguments play out. Yeah, this will go on for a while. So this is far from the only reproductive health care news of late uh, in the states. The race is on to get to the Supreme Court with what amounts to a near total ban on abortions by restricting them to when a heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks. We've got, what, four states now, I think, that have passed uh, what, are, what are called heartbeat bans. Um, and and uh, a number of other states uh, who are getting ready on the theory that Roe v. Wade could be overturned, um, states are trying to sort of ensure that their state laws do what they would like, which means that blue states are kind of rushing to make sure that abortion will remain legal and red states are rushing to make sure that abortion will uh, will be illegal. Tennessee just did something, right, Alice? Yes. So they have joined a bunch of other states in passing what's known as a trigger law. So it would be a total ban on abortion only if the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And I guess that avoids potential legal challenges now, which have been extremely expensive for states. um, And they've uh, mostly lost when attempting to do these total bans on abortions or these six-week bans. I know it's been interesting sort of watching the debate change because in the past when states have wanted to sort of take these test cases to the Supreme Court, when it was pretty clear that the Supreme Court was not going to approve them, um, there often was this argument about you're going to cost taxpayers an enormous amount of money fighting this legal battle that you're going to lose. Um, But now it's like, here's a legal battle that you might not lose. Mm -hmm. So it is it shifted this. But I do want to talk about the politics a little bit. Um, We have anti-abortion groups working hard to get the House to pass another version of a bill they passed in the early 2000s to confirm that you can't kill an infant that's been born. Um, which is was illegal then, is illegal now. And you have groups like Planned Parenthood working to ensure that abortion remains available. Um, it's the only likely outcome what we had before Roe, which is that in some states, abortion's going to remain legal and available. In some states, it's going to remain. It's going to be completely illegal, and it's almost unavailable now in some states. And in a few states, it might be somewhere in between. I mean, what are the politics, Rebecca? I think this is a huge issue for the 2020 elections, not in every state, but in some of those swing states where there are more conservative voters who are concerned about this issue. And I think that's why we've seen the Trump administration move forward on a wide array of different things. They've tried to make it harder to get contraception. They've really pushed on abortion throughout their administration. And, you know, see you see different states also taking action. You mentioned the heartbeat bills. Ohio was the most recent one to do that, where 
um, the Republican governor, Mike DeWine, former senator, um, signed that into law. And then we are waiting right now in Georgia to see what Brian Kemp is going to do. In right, terms of yeah, we, we, mm-hmm. we talked about that. He still hasn't hasn't done anything, right? He hasn't. Right? He mm-hmm. has until May 12th. And it's so interesting to me. On the state level, you have some some of the conservatives who are saying, this bill isn't conservative enough. And, mm-hmm. of course, all the abortion rights folks are saying this is this is unprecedented and it would basically outlaw abortion because some women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. And so I think um, moving forward, you're going to continue to see action from Republicans in trying to curtail abortion. And I, I do think that there will be some state Supreme Court decision at some point that will continue to chip away at the rights because the exit of Justice Anthony Kennedy was a big deal. But the Supreme Court has not shown itself to be raring to go on completely taking sweeping action on abortion. They've already had a few opportunities. They've had this Indiana case pending for like four or five months. Yeah, long time. Every single morning they do orders. I'm looking and looking and it's never there, um, even though they've conferenced on it a bunch of times. And now they've got a Louisiana case that just got appealed they to the, the Supreme Louisiana Court. They have a Louisiana case. They have Alabama cases. Which was a 15-week ban, if mm-hmm. I remember yeah. correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, they well, have. One of the cases that they're being asked to decide on Mm -hmm. right away has to do with um, a law that's very similar to one that they struck down in Texas, which Mm -hmm. essentially requires abortion providers to also have admitting privileges to local hospitals. And a lot of doctors don't have that because they don't tend to need to use hospitals a lot because the abortions don't tend to have a lot of side effects that require hospital admittance. Yeah, so ironically, abortion is very safe and and women who have abortion very rarely end up in a hospital. Often, you know, the hospitals are religiously affiliated and will refuse to grant them admitting privileges ideologically. Or they just grant don't refuse to grant them admitting privileges because they don't use the hospital. Right. Exactly. So I mean, be- the Supreme Court is being asked to essentially decide on that case without even ha- holding oral arguments. They still might or they you know might not take it up mm-hmm. at all. But those the Louisiana and the Indiana um, laws are the ones that we're most likely to kind of see some sort of decision on, which might be no decision even. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's no decision. Yeah. Right. But I think what we've learned, as you mentioned, is that um, the Supreme Court doesn't need to overturn Roe versus Wade to make abortion virtually non-existent, inaccessible. Uh, in in many areas, there are already several states that only have one, not several, a handful of states that only, only have, have one, one clinic left um, because of these regulations that have sort of um, chipped away and sort of closed one by one. And, and this Title X funding decision could lead to clinic closures as well. All right. Well, let us move on now to the latest in the Medicare for All debate, what it might mean for hospitals. Uh, so much of the debate about uh, what role private insurance might or might not have in a Medicare for All type system, and it's been sort of the kind of the be all end all of the debate. But there's been far less attention to the part of the health system that consumes the largest share of health spending, and that is hospitals. Why are hospitals so freaked out by the prospect <laughs> of Medicare for All? And I think it is fair to say that they are freaked out. Because they don't want to get paid less. You know, hospitals make up a huge amount of our national health spending. Um, They're about a third of our spending. It's more than a trillion dollars. It's a lot. And, you know, there's the old Willie Sutton axiom, go where the money is. If you're going to save money, then hospitals are the place to go. They are spending on hospitals is much more than than the 10% that we spend on prescription drugs. And And more than we spend on doctors. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so... Under under the Medicare for All bills, um, the bill by Representative Jayapal, which is going to be heard 
in a hearing next week by the Rules Committee, although we don't have any corresponding hearings in the committees of jurisdiction that would mark up the bill and actually move it forward to a floor vote. Yes, it's, it's, this is unusual for the Rules Committee to be holding what amounts to a legislative hearing. Yes. Normally, the Rules Committee has hearings on bills that have been <clears throat> finished from the other committees, and mm-hmm. it has sort of a perfunctory hearing right before a bill goes to the floor. That's not what this hearing is. It is not. It's actually an attempt by Speaker Pelosi to let people have their say, to move the process forward without really moving the process forward and without risking having a floor vote. So um, so I think that hospitals, um, even though this is not going to get a vote in the House this year, they're very concerned because under um, Representative Jayapal's bill, they would get a global lump sum some payment, a quarterly payment, sort of based on their historical spending. Under the Sanders bill, they would get Medicare rates, which are a lot lower than commercial rates. And the gap between Medicare and Medicaid rates and commercial rates over the past 10 years has spread quite a bit. Mm-hmm. People in commercial plans are getting charged a lot more than those in public coverage programs. So they see it as a real threat, and they're really lobbying very hard against it. Yeah, what was interesting was, because I had written about this last year, um, and I had reached out to groups like the American Hospital Association then, and they kind of said, well, we're not really commenting on it. And now they're, and so what I did was I ended up calling, you know, state hospital associations mm-hmm. where it's come up at the, you know, state level, and they were more clear on, you know, where they had stood and how they had lobbied against it. What they do is they really join up with pharmaceutical companies, with insurance companies, and, um, you know, other medical industry groups in order to push back um, together on on some of these measures. and They like you know, more people having coverage. They just don't like getting paid less for it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So they've all together really pushed much more what we're seeing moving in, by, in the House right now by Democrats, which is about expanding the Affordable Care Act. That's what they've mm-hmm. you know, really lobbied behind. And that's where the House is really focused on moving legislation and probably will pass this year, I would say. And politically, opposition from the hospital industry is going to be a huge hurdle and roadblock, I think, much more than the insurance industry, which is kind of a popular villain right now. Every single <laughs> congressional district has a hospital in yeah. yes. and multiple, obviously, in most. But and it's often the single biggest employer in the district. That was my district. next <laughs> <laughs> fun fact. Thank you, Alice. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, hospitals have, hospitals have cloud in a very different way than the insurance industry or even like the medical device industry. I mean, hospitals are, mm-hmm. they're popular. We actually need them to have a health system. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other really complicated thing is that, you know, some hospitals are doing amazingly well and some hospitals are really running on the edge of, you know, we've seen a lot of particularly rural hospitals yes. closing their doors. Yes. So, I mean, it varies by hospital. It's going to be a really hard needle to thread. I don't think you're just going to be able to say, we'll pay you 125% of Medicare rates, which is kind of what people are thinking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are hospitals that are clearly making too much, and mostly those are kind of monopoly hospitals. Right. And I don't know how much the hearing on uh, the House Medicare for All bill will go into this, but there are there is some language in there about prioritizing for rural and underserved areas, but it, it's not totally clear how that would work. So I don't know if that's going to be an area Rebecca we'll and dig I have, into. have spent most of our careers writing about all of the various little tweaks that Congress makes mm-hmm. almost every year to hospital payment, to rural hospitals. 
hospital payment to long-term care hospitals to, you know, disproportionate. I mean, there's 18 different categories of hospitals under Medicare now mm-hmm. that, that hospitals don't all get paid the same now right. because mm-hmm. there's this difficulty of trying to help the hospitals that are struggling without overpaying the hospitals mm-hmm. that are doing really well. Mm-hmm. That is definitely, I, I, I was glad to sort of see a, a bunch of stories this week on starting to take apart sort of the pieces of Medicare for All, why it's going to be so hard because every individual piece of it is going to be its own political fight. So one more while we are talking about payment. HHS this week unveiled some new proposals to pay doctors differently. Specifically, it's several new programs they say could ultimately move a quarter of all doctors and perhaps 10 million patients away from Medicare's fee-for-service payment and into a payment system based on actual outcomes. Uh, Even more surprising, these experiments seem to have broad support from Democrats and Republicans and even the American Medical Association. Um, Here's something about Medicare that people aren't fighting about. (laughs) I think a big piece of it is that it would be voluntary. Um, So it would not be imposed on on particular providers unless they opted into it, which is a a fight um, happening on the Democratic side around Medicare for all versus optional Medicare for all. And this is something that really different administrations have tried to work on. As you mentioned, it's something that's very bipartisan. Even Health and Human Services uh, Secretary Alex Azar, um, when he made this announcement, credited previous administrations for really getting the ball moving on what's called, you know, value-based care. It was in the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they kind of need the Affordable Care Act in order to do a lot of these measures. And so it has to do with making sure that, you know, when people receive medical care, they're not just, you know, getting services here and there, but that, they're at, that the services that they're getting are actually contributing to making them better, making sure that they're not readmitted to the hospital and things like that. And so they're they're doing these different programs that would, you know, give doctors essentially a lump sum. And if the patient does better, then they get kind of a bonus on top of that. And then they have other plans that they've put forward that would go to bigger medical practices. And it's kind of, it's interesting how this is a further iteration of what we've seen before. I, I think it's important that they consulted with doctors in designing this and took their advice. Um, because the previous efforts have have had mixed results. They haven't been entirely successful. There's a reason these are all still demonstrations. They're trying to yes. figure out what works. Right. And it is difficult. It's hard to make sure that you're giving the appropriate amount of, of funding so that, you know, that patients get the care they need and there's no skimping on care, but you, you know, you don't, you don't give put the wrong incentives in place in any particular direction and and that people who are sick actually get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. So so I think that um, you know it is great to see something move forward on a bipartisan basis. It's kind of unusual. I I got dozens of emails and all of them were praising this. I'm like that just never happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. you know, again, as Alice points out, it is voluntary, but still, I think there is a recognition in the these stakeholders of people who uh, who provide medical care and make money from it um, that perhaps uh, we need to to find a different way to not mm-hmm. encourage doctors to do things that are not necessarily necessary and to and to help streamline care. I mean the ob- the object of this is to provide is to save money possibly but also to provide better care um you know more efficient care. So it's you know value for the patients and value for the taxpayers who are paying for it. And before we leave Medicare entirely, we got the report from the Medicare trustees this week that basically found um kind of status quo that the 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 trust fund that funds the hospital care um, is going to run out, but not right away in in the next several years. Um, But I think it's worth noting that even without Medicare for all, 
Congress is going to have to do something about Medicare's finances sooner rather than later again. I, this is right. just this seems to be kind of ignored by people <laughs> on both sides of this debate. Well, in seven years, Medicare, the hospital part of Medicare, the trust fund for that, will only be able to pay out 89% of the care that's needed and, and cover those costs. And so this is something that Congress will come forward and will act on. They always do. Back in 1970, when Medicare was in its early stages, they said, oh, it's going to go broke in 1972. Well, that didn't happen. It never happens. But it's still We've been a pretty big close challenge. a couple times, though. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. And the last time we came back at this was the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, hospitals got a deal out of that. They got greater volume in exchange for lower payments. It's unclear what they're going to do this time. And it is obviously a bigger problem than Social Security. And so it'll be interesting. It's a more near-term problem yes. than Social Security. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's also more money. <laughs> it is, yes. And the administration can kind of move forward on different things and and try to change the trajectory a little bit. But they really need the help of Congress to come in and make a big difference. Well, and it was interesting to see the White House kind of uh, seize on that report as well to say, well, look, our Democrats want to do Medicare for all. So but we're already, you know, coming up short on Medicare. So how are we going to add more people to the system? So even that ended up being something that was politicized. Mm-hmm. But yes, they will Always. need to come. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that they will need to come together on some kind of a solution to, you know, get this. And that was a misleading attack because the Medicare for all bills would set up a completely separate new trust fund. So saying, you know, oh, we're going to put all these people on the same overburdened trust fund is, is not accurate. <laughs> but they do call it Medicare, which is confusing. Yes, it took do. me It took me a while to figure out that that most of the bills would not actually put people on Medicare. Right. They would put people on a new program totally that's new also called Medicare. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. One more. Uh, we've talked about wellness programs a lot on this show. And this week, well, last week, but we didn't do news last week, we got a big study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that found, surprise, wellness programs don't really improve the the health of their participants, uh, and they don't save money uh, in terms of healthcare spending. Uh, yet, four of five large U.S. employers offer these programs. Why? <laughs> Basically, the people who can and want to do these healthy behaviors are doing them, and the people who can't or are unwilling to uh, still are unwilling to, even with the incentives. And so, you are often end up punishing people with uh, disabilities or medical problems who, you know, cannot meet these improvement benchmarks, even if they tried. And um, you're rewarding people who are doing what they wouldn't do anyway. Anyway. <laughs> but why are, why are employers continuing to offer them? I think employers are looking for any silver bullet they can. Um, and the idea of maybe charging people up to 30% more for their premiums is attractive. I think there are a lot of different economic reasons why they want to go at this because healthcare is a huge drain on economic And there's a lot, of, a lot of consultants who are pushing it. That's true. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a big industry. Mm-hmm. But I'm just, I mean, this is not, the, this may be sort of the, the, the highest quality study, major study we've seen mm-hmm. on this, but there have been a lot of studies that said that, yeah, wellness is a good idea, but it hasn't really panned out in terms of the bottom line, in terms of either health or, or spending. And yet we, we see, you know, maybe, Alice may be right, maybe the people who do it like it. And so employers, maybe it's just now a perk, not a way to <laughs> save money. <laughs> 
We will have to see. Um, Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Kimberly, why don't you start us off this week? Yeah, sure. Um, I picked a story from the Texas Tribune by Elizabeth Byrne, and it's called Texas Removes Thousands of Children from Medicaid Each Month Due to Red Tape Record Show. Um, And the Texas Tribune has done a ton of great reporting on uh, the the Medicaid program in the state. Uh, So I highly recommend uh, checking it out and seeing what went wrong. I I should point out, I read this story. This is Texas sort of re-examining people's incomes um, more often than is required. And I just laughed because I did a story in like 2001 or 2002 on almost this exact same thing about how states, when they're feeling strapped and they want fewer people on Medicaid, make it harder for people to either get on or stay on. And when they're feeling flush, they actually make it easier for people to get on and stay on. Um, It's sort of an age-old state technique about Mm -hmm. Medicaid, but here's Texas doing it again. Alice. Well, we have talked a lot before about these uh, digital privacy scares <laughs> and all of the ways that uh, these technologies that are there to help us and support us uh, are actually spying on us. <laughs> and we've talked before about the PAP machines or, or uh, CPAPs, CPAP yeah. machines. Um, we've talked about um, pregnancy apps that <laughs> For tracking, like, your baby is the size of an olive now. Your baby is the size of a cucumber. Um, are are sharing your data uh, with third-party companies. So this uh, new piece uh, in the Washington Post, uh, which is a write-up of a JAMA study, um, is talking about apps for helping people quit smoking and to manage their depression. And they uh, are giving their data to Google, Facebook, and other third-party companies without their consent. Surprise! So, Buyer beware. (laughs) Rebecca. So I picked something from The Atlantic. It's called Physicians Get Addicted To. And there's kind of a thought in journalism that sometimes if you tell people that millions of people are affected by a particular problem, it's not as impactful as telling one person's story. Mm -hmm. And so this is a deep dive into the story of the first doctor who was prosecuted in West Virginia, which is just a hotbed of opioid addiction. Um, and he actually was addicted, too. He he started providing pain pills to his patients. One night he's working late, he pops a Vicodin, and all of a sudden he is on that same path. And it's a story about how his life fell apart, then he pulled it back together. And it it's kind of a a microcosm of the story of the town, which is Clarksburg, West Virginia, which also tells the story of the national opioid epidemic. It's an amazing piece. Um, Mine is a super nerdy piece from the New York Times by Aaron Carroll, and it's called What Can the U.S. Health System Learn from Singapore? And spoiler, the answer is quite a lot if we bother to look. Uh, Aaron is both a doctor and a researcher, and he went to Singapore and spent some time there earlier this year. And while it is a very small, relatively affluent nation, it may manages to merge public and private systems in a pretty workable way. There are obviously trade-offs, but in the U.S., we're not going to be able to give everyone everything the minute they want it, no matter what system we have. Uh, It might behoove us to look a little more closely at how other countries manage this balance. Um, Okay, end of lecture. (laughs) So that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps us other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. 
At Rebecca Adams, DC. At Alice Alstein. At Leonard KL. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.